are listening to the Sunday Sermon from Crossroads Bible Church in Bellevue, Washington. To learn more about Crossroads, visit us on our website at cbcbellevue.com. Three weeks ago, I jokingly asserted that all dogs go to heaven and that the eternal destiny of cats is uncertain. Now, dogs and cats are different, aren't they? A dog says, you pet me, feed me, shelter me, and love me. You must be God. A cat says, you pet me, you feed me, you shelter me, you love me. I must be God. In other words, dogs believe that the world revolves around their master, but cats believe the world revolves around them. When it comes to worship, are you a dog Christian or a cat Christian? Solomon is going to talk to us about our worship this morning. We're going to look at a section in Ecclesiastes that's brief and potent. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. And what Solomon is going to do is, he's going to emphasize our need to examine our worship. And he does something fascinating. In what some have called an interlude to the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon uses the term God eight different times in seven verses. Now, this ought to shock you if you've been a part of our series through Ecclesiastes, because Solomon has been focused in on life under the sun. In other words, everything that's horizontal. But now he's going to look above the sun to matters that are eternal. And he's going to exhort us in our corporate worship. And he's ultimately going to say that there are two very important challenges. We could even call them commitments or expectations that we need to be about as a church family. First, prepare for worship. Second, keep your word. And he's going to say something profound. He's going to say that God seeks worshipers with open hearts and closed mouths. God seeks open hearts and closed mouths. So let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 3, where Solomon says, prepare for worship. Solomon is going to say that we need to engage our heart, our minds, and our bodies as we get ready to worship the Lord publicly and corporately. Look with me at verse 1. Solomon writes, guard your steps as you go to the house of God. Solomon immediately gives us a command. And from our study of Ecclesiastes, you know that commands are rare. Solomon is primarily describing his experience. He's walking through his memoirs, 
his journal, if you will. But here, he brings the heat. He says, guard your steps. And again, the context is corporate public worship. Now, in Solomon's day, God's people worshiped at his temple. Solomon built the temple. It took seven years and 153,000 workers. Solomon knew something about worship. Solomon's home overlooked the temple. I'm sure he was able to observe so much of what happened as God's people worshipped him. You could say he was an expert in worship. But today, it's not a building where the Holy Spirit resides. The Apostle Paul says in 1 and 2 Corinthians that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That when we placed our faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit came to live within us. So everywhere you and I go is worship. In whatever we do, in whatever we say, in whatever we think, there's worship. But in this context, in every verse, there's an emphasis upon corporate worship with God's people. So we would acknowledge, even though there's nothing sacred about this particular building, when God's people come together, something significant should take place. There should be a sense of awe. There should be a sense of fear. There should be passion and exuberance as well. Solomon begins by saying, guard your steps. Literally, guard your feet. Now, this is a familiar expression, isn't it? I mean, we will often say, watch your step. If you're getting on or off a bus, the bus driver will typically say, watch your step. When you're getting on to an airplane or when you're getting off an airplane, there's a flight attendant who greets you. Thank you for flying with us. Watch your step, please. When you're in a heated argument with your parents, not that our teens would know anything about this, but when you start to get angry and your voice starts to raise and you posture up, your parents may say, Watch your step, watch your words. Be careful, and you ought to submit and respect that. God's saying the same thing. He's saying when you enter into worship with God's people, there should be a sense of sincerity. There should be a sense of authenticity. There should be a sense of humility. God wants to be sure that we are taking worship very, very seriously. Now stop and think about public corporate worship for just a moment. I mean, we know what it's like, right? We stand. We sit. We sing. We smile. We stare. We sleep. 
Now, we can do all of these things in autopilot, can't we? This is much like how we interact with people on a regular basis. You'll say, let's do lunch. And you rarely think about lunch in advance. You don't necessarily think through, what questions do I want to ask this person? Where is the conversation going to head? What's it going to be like? How can I be fully engaged? How can I put my phone away? How can I not even necessarily take my phone into the restaurant? How can I be locked and loaded? No, we just say, let's do lunch. That's often how it is with church. Let's go to church. I got nothing better to do. Let's just head into church. This is really convicting because if you look at what Solomon says, he not only talks about our preparation for corporate worship, he talks about our participation in corporate worship. And you can see that quite simply. Guard your steps as or whenever you go to the house of God. So here Solomon assumes that you and I will be going to the house of God habitually, consistently, regularly. And regularly doesn't mean what it means to evangelical Christians today, once a month. See, before COVID, it was 1.3 times a month that people like you and me would go to church. Can you imagine what it is now? Research shows that as a result of COVID, 20% of evangelical Christians will never again return to church. So the experts are saying just diminish and drop your attendance and your membership by 20% minimum. Solomon would have known nothing about that. Solomon would have said, I expect that you will worship God every single week. Is this a habit for you? Is this the high point of your week? Do you anxiously and passionately anticipate being with the family of God, coming together as God's people? If not, it's time for a heart check. What is it that's more important to you than gathering with your spiritual family members who you will spend eternity with. God seeks worshipers with an open heart and a closed mouth. Now let's think for just a moment what preparation in worship might look like. Well, let me ask you what you did yesterday. Did you give a thought to what would happen when we gathered together on Sunday morning? Now, I'm not opposed to television, movies. I'm especially not opposed to March Madness. I'm not opposed to you hanging out with friends, going out to dinner on Saturday night, enjoying a leisurely trip out of town. 
but did you think at all about today? Which is the most important day of the week, the Lord's Day. What did you do in preparation for this morning? See, for some of you, thinking about it Saturday night may seem a little odd and it may be too much for you. But what about Sunday morning? Did you wake up a little earlier this morning to read the scripture passage once? On your drive-in, did someone read the scripture text or did you listen to it? Did you pray that every part of this worship gathering and all the ministries that are taking place in this building, that they would honor the Lord Jesus, that they would lift him up? How did you prepare for this morning? And then how are you going to participate in this morning? And how is this morning going to lead into this afternoon where you continue your heart preparation and on your way home you ask, how did the songs glorify God? How did they minister to me? And how did they ultimately glorify God? What was it that stood out to me in the word as it was proclaimed? How was I able to challenge someone or encourage or comfort someone from God's word? And how did they do the same to me? It's the constant preparation and participation. It's funny, whenever I think about participation, I think of passion. Passion is a large part of our preparation. When Lori and I are out and about and we see a couple that's particularly affectionate, we will immediately look at one another, smile, and say, clearly they're not married. <laughs> it's obvious that they're dating. When I teach Bible college classes and I see a student reading the Bible between classes, I immediately say, there's a freshman. That's not an upperclassman. You can see where this is going. When we see people that are particularly passionate, they're energetic, they're enthused by what they see going on, on Sunday morning, or in their Christian lives in general, will say, there's a baby Christian. There's a brand new Christian. Why is that? See, the truth is, some of us have been Christians too long. And I mean that facetiously. We have lost our first love. Church has become too familiar. In fact, God has become too familiar. So we don't recognize the strategic importance of Sunday mornings or any time that we gather with God's people. Now, while this is certainly talking about corporate worship, corporate worship leads right into daily worship. The things that you learn, the things that you sing, the conversations that you have, the celebrations of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and the community groups that you attend where church truly takes place, 
these activities lead right into your daily worship experience. God wants us to be passionate, but he wants us to be authentic. For some of you, you're like, Keith, I am not a passionate person. Just ask my spouse or ask my friends. I get that. I'm not asking you to be anyone that you're not. I'm just simply asking, what are you passionate about? And is that passion, that sporting activity, that child, that grandchild, that boyfriend or girlfriend, that career, are you more passionate about that than you are what the Lord wants to do on a Sunday morning? Conversely, some of us are naturally wired and bent to be passionate, and we have a hard time turning ourselves off. Solomon would simply say, respond to God appropriately. Guard your steps. Watch yourself as you enter the house of God. Now, he continues in verse 1 by giving us another command. And draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifices of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. The sacrifice of fools is when you and I spend little time listening and too much time talking. When we're in the midst of corporate worship, public worship, God's goal for us is first and foremost to listen. Now, by that we mean hearing from God. This is the reason that at Crossroads Bible Church, we have about 20 minutes of singing and 40 minutes of preaching. As important as worship through singing is, God's goal for the church is to hear from Him. And what that means is when we rightly open up the Word of God, we are listening to Him. And this is hard for some of us, isn't it? You may be saying, Keith, it's not hard for me. You just stand up on a stage and you talk and talk and talk. And all I have to do is listen. But where's your head? Where's your heart? What are those postures? God wants you to come ready to hear from him. He doesn't necessarily want you checking my grammar. He doesn't want you assuming that you may know systematic theology or biblical studies better than I do because you're researching it online while I preach. He's not concerned about whether everything that I say tickles your fancy and meets a felt need. He wants to know are you and I coming to church in order to hear a word from him and to know him better? And to the degree that that's the posture of our heart, God is pleased. And that's why Crossroads has the core value of biblical teaching. Not just what's done on the Sunday morning stage, 
but what's done in every part of our church family from cradle to grave. In every home, in every classroom, in every area of ministry that the Word of God is being preached or taught and that we are receptive listeners. God expects this morning that you worship Him according to what you will hear in His Word. If we look at verse 1, those that are comfortable with religious ritual, they come to church or they go to their community group week in and week out and they go through the motions and they don't even know that what they're doing is foolish. See, here's what's brutal. Solomon calls us fools in one way, shape, or form three times in seven verses. How do you like them apples? I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't like being called a fool. But he's not talking about whether or not you're strong or weak in math or science. And if you're weak in math or science, you're a fool. Now, some of you would say, yes, that's true. But that's not the Bible's definition of fool. In the Old and New Testament, a fool is someone who ignores God, who is hard-hearted and stiff-necked. They are disobedient. And Solomon is saying, you and I have a responsibility to draw near to listen. We have two ears and one mouth for a reason. We should listen twice as much as we talk. Solomon is saying that's not only true on Sunday mornings, that's true as a way of life since all of our lives are about worship. We should make sure we have an open heart, a heart that's open and receptive to God and a closed mouth when it's appropriate. As James said, we need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. James most likely had this passage in mind from Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We see in verse 2 that Solomon is going to move from you and I perhaps needing to listen far more than we talk to making sure that we don't sin in our speech. Verse 2 has two more commands. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. That's the second command. I love this. We have worship songs that have been written based upon this verse. Many times when we look at this verse, we think, well, yeah, this is an obvious verse indicating the distance between us and God. He's in heaven. We're on earth. But it's greater than that. Isaiah 66 says, and this is the Lord speaking, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. And I love this because I like gliders, rocking chairs with ottomans. I like to put my feet on an ottoman. And that's what God is saying about our planet. It's just one of many planets in our solar system. This isn't talking about distance. It's talking about 
perspective. God is saying, I rule and reign. I laugh at the rulers of the world who are shaking their fist at me and defying me. And the earth that all you human beings who I call grasshoppers facetiously, you think the earth is so important, it's so immense, it's my footstool. See, God hears that which is inaudible. He sees that which is invisible. God is large and in charge. He's the creator and the sustainer of the universe. And he says, in light of that, let your words be few. Know how I've positioned you. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't communicate with the Lord how we feel or thoughts that we have. He knows all these things. And he wants us to communicate with him. But he wants us to adopt the proper posture. That's why he commands us, do not be hasty in word or impulsive in your thoughts. In other words, recognize who you're talking to when you interact with God. Don't fall prey to what athletes say. The man upstairs, my homeboy, dude. I've heard God call, called all these things by athletes, by Hollywood celebrities, and sometimes even by Christians. God wants you and I to recognize who he is and all that he is and to worship him. Verse 3 explains further God's perspective through Solomon. Solomon quotes a proverb. He says, for the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. When a person works hard, they dream. Now, in this case, this is a negative proverb because it's parallel with the next statement. The next statement being that the voice of a fool is heard through many words. So, as we work hard, sometimes the grievous task that Solomon calls work, it brings about cares, it brings about pressures, and those cares make it into our dreams. In the same way, a fool who talks and talks and talks to God and to others demonstrates he doesn't understand the nature or character of God because God wants worshipers who have an open heart and a closed mouth. So how can we accomplish this? We spend time reading God's word. We start our day in the word. We find a way to end our day in the Word. And it may be 30 seconds. It may be up to five minutes. Some of us just need to take that step of commitment where we're sitting, we're soaking, we're simmering in the Word. It's what I call the crockpot approach. Where the Word becomes a part of who we are. And it governs how we pray. So instead of thinking, well, I've got to read the word and I've got to pray. No, we read the word and we pray simultaneously. We pray with our eyes open and we pray 
Only that which God has promised to respond to. His word. As much as God loves me, he doesn't promise that he will respond to what I request or pray. He promises he will respond to his word as I pray his word and trust in his sovereignty. God wants us to prepare for corporate worship each and every week. And not just corporate worship, but our community groups, our Sunday morning communities, our acts of service, our outreach, our care, which we do with our members. Everything that we do that is that's an expression of worship, both corporately and privately, God wants us to bathe it in prayer and the Word, because He seeks open hearts and closed mouths. He has told us we need to prepare for worship. That's His first expectation. His second expectation is keep your word. Keep your word. He's going to say that our word means something. It especially means something when it comes to making vows before God. The term vow is used five times in these verses. So it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out the key concept here. Look at verse 4 with me. Solomon writes, when you, when you make your vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vowed. Oof. Two more commands. Solomon is bringing the heat. See, in biblical times, vows were not commanded. But Solomon assumes when you vow, that all of us at one time or another have vowed or will vow something to God. Now, in biblical times, people vowed to God to get something from God often. Not always, but often they were making this commitment to God that was conditional based upon what God might do for them. God says, if you make a vow to him and you don't pay it, Woe is you. Woe is me. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't appropriate vows to make. Those of you who are married, you made a vow before God and people in your marriage covenant. We welcomed new members to Crossroads today. That's a vow. You're committing to church expectations. You're signing a church discipline and reconciliation statement. You're adhering to our doctrine and to our values and our vision. So you're making a vow that you will be committed to the Lord and to Crossroads as long as he has you at Crossroads. Those of you who have been baptized, you're making a vow that you will live as a disciple for the rest of your life. These are wonderful vows. These are great commitments. But Solomon is saying, be careful not to make other vows in order to get God to do what you want him to do. Because you may be very sorry. Here are examples. You may have been speeding on your way to church this morning because you were running late. 
and you saw a police officer. And you said, Lord, please do not allow me to get a ticket. I promise I will never speed again. Don't ever make that vow. If you're a high school student, you may say, God, if you just allow me to make it to state or get into the college of my choice, I promise you I will attend church every week for the next four years. Don't make that vow. If you've looked at someone of the opposite sex twice, God forbid, three or four times as you walked by and then it struck you, oh no, God, do not let my significant other catch me in this act. And if you protect me, I will never glance or lust again. Don't make that vow. Don't say, Lord, I need this promotion. I at least need this raise. And if you give me this raise or this promotion, I vow, I promise you, Lord, I will give 20% of my income to you. Don't make that vow. See, we could go through numerous vows that we all think or we make. And Solomon says, don't go there. Do not go there. Because if you do, you'll be sorry. God seeks worshipers with open hearts and closed mouths, particularly when it comes to vows. In verses 5 and 6, Solomon continues his argument. He says, it is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do, 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 do. Pay up. It's a command. If you don't think you can pay up, don't vow. In verse 6, Solomon says, Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. That's likely the priest, because again, we're dealing with temple worship, because vows were typically made in the temple. It was a public commitment that was often made, and with that came accountability. Solomon is saying, you don't want the accountability that could come from vowing something and not fulfilling it. Solomon says, why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Uh-oh. I put a little asterisk here. When I see something in Scripture that causes me to be sobered, I love to put that asterisk because it draws my heart and mind back to this particular phrase or verse. Some of us have made vows to God and God is in the process and has been in the process of destroying the work of our hands. And we're wondering why things in our life are going rather difficult. It's because we made a vow and we stopped payment on it. It's very important that you hear this. Some of us are dealing with things that are disconcerting. 
could be things like physical, mental, emotional, or spiritual weakness. It could be financial problems because we've made vows and oaths to the Lord and we haven't actually carried through on our word. The other interesting thing is it's possible that God has blessed you in spite of your disobedience and he's allowed you to experience prosperity and comfort and pleasure and you have found them unsatisfying, just like the author of this book, Solomon. See, it can work seemingly positively or negatively, but we need to recognize that God loves us deeply and passionately, and he doesn't want us playing games with him. So if it's within our ability to pay the vow, we need to pay it. For those of us, myself included, that have failed in vows, we need to repent. Lord, I spoke rashly. I spoke hastily. I am confessing my sin to you. I was caught up in the moment and I was a fool. And I've continued to play the fool. Please forgive me. If you've made the vow publicly to members of your family or to your community group or to people in your life, ask their forgiveness. Ensure that you're right with God and right with people. And it may be that some of the suffering that God has allowed into your life will dissipate. Notice how Solomon concludes in verse 7. He says, For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. And he gets in that term that we've discussed, havel which means vapor, that which is fleeting. So all the things, the dreams, the goals, the work, it's all fleeting. But then Solomon concludes by saying, rather, fear God. End of story. Solomon says, in light of all your pursuits, in light of all your endeavors, in light of all the promises that you have made and either kept or broken, at the end of the day, just fear God. If there's one vow to make, that's it. Fear God. So what this means, practically speaking, is when we come to church and we're singing songs that are really a commitment to God, but we know we're not obeying the lyrics of the songs. We can choose not to sing the songs because we're making a public vow, if you would. But wouldn't it be better to simply say, Lord, as I prepare my heart to worship you on Sunday morning, I'm going to sing songs to you that I'm not going to fully be able to obey. But I want you to hear the posture of my heart that I want to obey. I want to listen. I want to respond to you. And Lord, when I hear your word preached, I want to hear a word from you. I want to know you better, and then I want to apply your word to my life. I'm going to prepare. I'm going to participate. 
I'm going to open up my heart. I'm going to close my mouth. And I'm going to be the worshiper that you want me to be. Jesus understood this. In Mark chapter 11, in the temple, there were all kinds of sellers. They were selling doves and any number of other things in the temple outskirts. And Jesus came in and he turned over the tables. And he said, my house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. But you've made it a den of robbers. See, often we can confuse the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is not for me, myself, and I. The purpose of the church is for God and for God's glory. So I ask you, are you a cat worshiper or a dog worshiper? Let's pray together. Father, prepare our hearts to continue in worship. Help the posture of our hearts, our minds, our motives, our attitudes, our thoughts, our words. Help it to be pleasing to you. Father, we acknowledge today that worshiping in spirit and truth is all about a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We will only go through religious rituals apart from knowing Jesus Christ personally. If you're watching online and you're hearing this opportunity to trust in Jesus, do so today. Talk to our prayer team who's online. For those of us in person and you know that the Lord is prompting you to believe in his son, the Lord Jesus, Come on over to the foot of the cross where the prayer team will be waiting for you. Trust in Jesus and become a worshiper who will then walk in a manner worthy of his or her calling. Father, we want to be worshipers who honor you publicly and privately. We want to be a church that pleases your heart. Lord, we want you to look down from heaven to earth and smile upon Crossroads Bible Church. Lord, we want to lift high the name of Jesus Christ. Help us to be the worshipers that you want us to be. And Lord, we confess our failure to you. We have not always listened. We have talked too much. We have not kept our vows and our promises. But you tell us you are faithful in spite of our faithlessness. We are turning to you, Lord Jesus, today as an act of worship. Make us who you want us to be for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.